The following recording is from Parramatta Christian Church. We pray that this message inspires you in your walk with Christ. G'day, my name is DJ and I'm very privileged to be with you this morning. I'm disappointed that I can't be with you in person and meeting you and engaging with you uh, directly. But uh, under the circumstances, uh, it's great to be with you in this way. And I'm very excited for you that you will be meeting again together uh, face-to-face, for many of you at least, in the weeks to come. That's great news. Uh, I've been, had the joy uh, of knowing Hilary and Dash for many years. I worked with uh, Dash uh, back at Compassion Australia some years ago. And these days I serve as the Associate, in fact, Acting Dean of Theology at Alpha Crucis College just down the road in Parramatta. And it's a joy to be with you this morning for the first in a series on, uh, entitled Together. Well, 2020, it's been a crazy year, thanks to this little critter. Who's ever going to forget this image? If you had to summarise in a sentence what 2020 has been like for you, how would you describe it? In his classic work, A Tale of Two Cities, set in the French Revolution, Charles Dickens uh, opened with a famous paradox. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Well, I don't know that many people would accuse 2020 of being the best of times. If you're a Melbourneian or you've lost work or maybe even a loved one, you may be tempted to regard 2020 as among the worst of times. But I think if we were to paraphrase Dickens here, what we might be able to say is that 2020 has brought out in some ways the best of us, as well perhaps as the worst of us. You might remember some of these images or uh, experiences even in your own community, in your own neighbourhood. People putting up signs to offer to help elderly neighbours with shopping or putting out signs about community and kindness, leading to things like the kindness pandemic and uh, gestures of appreciation and thanks for healthcare workers and so forth. And of course, New York City, people turning out on their balconies during lockdown to applaud emergency healthcare workers during the height of their pandemic lockdown over there. And even uh, people offering free toilet paper to their neighbours and their community. But on the flip side of the toilet paper thing, of course, who'll ever forget these memorable images from 20? 20 of the toilet paper wars uh, in Woolies and elsewhere. By the way, who secretly actually stashed away some toilet paper just in case uh, it was in short supply? Uh, Just, uh, you know, post your, your comments and your confessions in the comments box if that was you. But more seriously, on the global front, we've seen so many other countries devastated by COVID 19, and we've also seen protests. Uh, after the death of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and others. We've seen counter-protests, groups squaring off across barricades and so forth on the streets of the US. Armed militia people, these guys down here, if you can see them, they're not military, they just look like they're military. Armed militia groups carrying military-style weapons and armaments. And of course, the use of tear gas and armed force to clear crowds so that uh, the president of the US could uh, walk down the streets, hold up a Bible in front of a church. Kind of an ironic uh, situation, I think you'd agree. And in the midst of a really heightened election season in the US, 
the death of a Supreme Court Justice, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, only heightening tensions further across the political and social and racial and cultural divides. In fact, uh, we've watched on with bemusement from the shores of Australia at what seems to be an increasing oxymoron, the United States, a contradiction in terms, almost. And back in Australia, uh, we've also seen uh, some, some encouraging signs of solidarity. Our national cabinet uh, meeting together across party lines, the Prime Minister and uh, our state premiers who come from different political parties at times, working together and the public seeing an instance of bipartisan cooperation and what it can produce uh, for our national community. And then back in the US, signs of solidarity, uh, National Guards troopers taking the knee uh, in solidarity uh, and taking a stance alongside protesters for racial uh, and cultural equality uh, and justice and members of the police uh, force and so forth. And back in Australia, we've seen these, again, memorable images of people queued up around the block to sign up for JobSeeker at Centrelink. So it's been a year where we've seen, in some ways, the best of us. We've seen the tough times, and in the midst of it, we've sometimes seen, unfortunately, the worst of us as well. But one of the, one of the uh, silent challenges to emerge in 2020, especially during lockdown, and especially for single people, whether they're young or elderly people, has been the, that loss of personal interactions, a loss of community, even for several months or longer down in Melbourne. Well, next Saturday is World Mental Health Day and a raft of research is underway to try to understand the effects of isolation and social distancing, lockdown and, and other social restrictions on mental well-being. But early research and anecdotal reports suggest that the pandemic has had significant impacts on mental health in some people, particularly amongst the young and the elderly people who've been isolated from their family or their social networks. Now, I'm an introvert, not deeply as some, but it means that I energise by being alone, and perhaps you're an introvert as well. So on the whole, lockdown hasn't really been a hardship for me. Uh, but for many people, especially extroverts, those who energise by being with people, like my youngest daughter, this has been a really tough time. And you might remember some of these memes that were doing the rounds back in March and April and since. But whether or not you're an introvert or an extrovert, no matter how you've responded to uh, the restrictions that we suffered back in March, April, May and thereabouts, we need other people. Ultimately, we do not flourish on our own. In the creation story of Genesis, when God looks at Adam in the Garden of Eden, God says it's not good for the Adam, for the man, to be alone. And... The 17th century English poet John Milton observed that this is the first negative word that God is here to, heard to speak in the creation narrative. Everything to this point has been God saw that it was good and God saw that it was good and God saw it was very good. But it's not good for the human being to be alone. Why is that? Aristotle, the ancient Greek philosopher, said that hum the human being by nature is a political animal. Now, the word political comes from the Greek word polis, which means city or perhaps what we might call a town or even a village. And Aristotle bases his idea on the observation that human beings naturally live in families and then 
tri- clans and then tribes and then villages and cities and so on. They live in communities, in other words. We gather together as, as human herd animals for protection and to produce what's needed to thrive and survive, to experience, in Aristotle's words, the good life together. Thomas Aquinas, the great medieval theologian, agreed, as did John Calvin, the 16th century reformer. We're social beings, they all said, so gathering and governing in communities together is part of our God-given nature. For Aristotle, Aquinas and Calvin, we are village people, not the village people, but village people all the same. That's a sight gag for those of a certain age or older. So we're village people. Again, not those ones, perhaps. Why is that? Well, we might say that it's in our human DNA, to speak metaphorically. It's how we're wired. Even the most introverted of us, the most reclusive of us, are built for what we might call right and rich relationships. And of course, something has gone wrong with the original design, and we live with this contradiction, that no longer we have right and rich relationships all of the time as our kind of default mode, but often we experience broken relationships and unfilled yearning for relationships and community. Sometimes those relationships are highly dysfunctional. Sometimes they're just kind of transactional. I give something to you in return for getting something from you. Sometimes those relationships are abusive. Sometimes we withdraw from others, put up protective barriers, and sometimes uh, we, we actually actively foster and breed divisions, particularly from those who are different from us. And we've seen the evidence of that in the calls for racial justice and reconciliation uh, in the US, Australia and in other places in recent years. But again, why does it seem to be in our DNA to be social communal animals, even though what was originally hardwired into us seems to have gone haywired? Well, we could just sort of stop here and say, God made us that way. Or we could say that we evolved that way for survival in a hostile and violent world. But the Christian tradition has long proposed that there is a deeper reason, a richer reason for why we seem hardwired for community and also in terms of what has gone wrong. It's a reason which starts before there was a human race. When God was all there was, and all there was, was God. You see, before there was time and space and matter and everything that we can see and touch and and feel, God was. And God existed as an eternal community, we might say. Not community as we understand that word from our human experience. We can't start with our uh, poor, sometimes broken and imperfect community project that onto God and understand somehow God's like us, it actually works in reverse. He is the one who is the source, the genesis, the definition, we might say, of all community, which human community today is a a poor and distant and distorted echo, but nevertheless, which derives from God's own being. Where do we get this idea from? Well, When we put together evidence from across the various parts of Scripture, including the book of John, which opens with a deliberate reference back to the creation story of Genesis 1, we see that God existed eternally as one God in what we call a plurality of Father, Son 
and spirit. Now, if we had more time, we could unpack a lot of the New Testament evidence for this, and indeed perhaps even hints in the Old Testament. Uh, We could unpack references like the opening section of John's Gospel, and indeed later on in some of the prayers that Jesus prays uh, before he leaves and heads to the cross and beyond. We'll try to make some of these available if we can, uh, because in some of these passages are the most profound and intimate insights into God's relationship as Father, Son and Spirit, both when God the Son in the person of Jesus Christ walked on earth amongst us, but also hinting at what those relationships were like in eternity. When we put these references from the Gospel of John together with some from the other Gospels, such as uh, Matthew's uh, baptism episode where uh, Jesus is being baptised and heaven opens and, and the Spirit descends like a dove, the narrative says, And a voice from heaven, the Father, says, This is my beloved Son. When we put these verses together, and also the uh, episode later in Matthew Matthew 18, with some of Paul's writings and the things that Paul says in Corinthians, Galatians and elsewhere, what we see is one God in three persons. The Trinity, as the Christian faith has come to understand God. Father, Son and Spirit. Together... In eternity. Now, to be clear, Trinity isn't a word that you'll find in the Bible, but it's certainly an idea, or rather a portrait of God, that we find in the Bible. Actually, the word Bible doesn't appear in the Bible, but it's certainly a biblical idea. And Trinity is made up of tri, or three, and unity, meaning oneness or uh, togetherness. And it's about the best word that we have to describe God's unique way of being as we see it in the scriptures and his way of being in community for all eternity. And this unique revelation about God and who God's eternal essence uh, is, about this being in communion, if you like, in all of eternity, that's at the heart of the Christian belief in God. And it's also at the heart of Christian belief in community. Here's why. From reflecting on the scriptures, we see that God's very eternal existence is characterised by love. It's not something that God starts to do or, or starts to be even when he makes us. And God can be love before there was us because although he is one God, there are distinctions within God as the Father, Son and Spirit. You see, love involves both someone doing the love and someone being loved. Otherwise, there's no possibility of genuine love, only narcissism or a loveless isolation. But within the triune God, the Trinity, the Father loves the Son and the Spirit, or by the Spirit, we sometimes say in Trinitarian theology. And the Son loves the Father and the Spirit, or by the Spirit. Now, this is not some kind of soppy, romantic, Valentine's Day kind of love, but an incomprehensible, overwhelming, eternal, self-giving, other-honouring, powerful, pure, abundant love, which glorifies and gives everything of itself to the other, father to son, son to father in the spirit. It's an eternal love, and it's a love which by its nature isn't kept to itself, but which spills over 
And out of this superabundant eternal love, God creates. He creates willingly, not out of need, not because he's lonely or lacking or lost for something to do or someone to be with. Because God is love, in essence, in the relationships between Father, Son and Spirit, God creates out of that love something to love. Now, before we go on, let me just sharpen this point a little bit more. God actually didn't need you and he didn't need me. Now, that may come as a bit of a surprise to us, but as an eternal community of love, God had and has everything God needs. He had love, was love without us. He would have been no less God without us. He was not socially distanced or isolated. As C.S. Lewis said, we are entirely superfluous to God. He says this, God, who needs nothing, loves into existence wholly superfluous, that is, unneeded creatures, in order that he may love and perfect them. Maybe just dwell on that thought for a moment. Let it kind of sink into your heart and your head. And here's the good news. If God didn't need us, if he didn't need to create you, if he didn't need to create the world, then he must have created it out of grace, a desire to lavish the overflow of his eternal love upon something outside of God himself. He created you to love you. He created the world to love the world. He created your next door neighbour, the person across from you at work that you sometimes don't get on with so well. People in church, those that you like and get along with, those that you don't get along with quite so well. He made them to love them, just as he made you to love you. And he made all of us to know genuine love and community between ourselves as well as with God. So, out of abundance, God creates a cosmos full of life and wonder, goodness and abundance from which to share his eternal overflowing love. He creates a world which will continue to procreate or bring forth life and be filled with beings which might know and experience and flourish in this overflow of the unfathomable divine love of Father, Son and Spirit. Creatures like you and me which bear his image which have the capacity to know and return that love and to turn it outwards so as to lavish it on each other and the world in which God has placed us. But those creatures, the ones which bear his divine image and likeness, his royal sons and daughters, we might say, the objects of his love, the ones most capable of love because they share in their DNA and their destiny, they turn away from that abundance and love. Instead, the creatures turn inward, choosing love for selves, narcissism, independence and isolation, what Luther called a curving back in on ourselves over love for God and love for others. But making the self, not God and others, the highest priority turns love into hate or at best indifference and manipulation of others to meet our needs. And this not loving has dire consequences for the creatures themselves because they were made to love and they deny their own humanity when they fail to love. 
They become less human or even inhuman uh, when they lack love and lack the experience of being loved, of true community, we might say. And of course, they suffer at the hands of others who treat them with hate or indifference or even abuse. But the God who is love will not abandon the creatures he has made in love and for love and to love. For their failure to love him and each other cannot stop him being who and what he is and what he does, giving of himself for those he loves. In fact, before he created the world, knowing what would happen, God had already determined how he would love his wayward world back to himself. So God the Father determined to send his Son, who willingly chooses also to come, in the power of the Spirit of love, into the wayward world to win it back. And in doing so, God the Father, Son and Spirit gather together a small group of Jesus' people, out of whom he creates a community, a new community, the church, and sends them out in the power of the Spirit of love to be a new community in the midst of the old broken community, the old broken human community, the world. A community which will, a new community that is, which will witness to both the eternal community of the Father, Son and Spirit and the church's destiny for community with God. And so in the New Testament, the church is constituted at the Father's will by the Son's actions and the Spirit's baptism of fire as a new community in the midst of the old, a community which attests to the right and rich relationships for which we were made by being forerunners of that new community, a community of peace and shalom, ambassadors of reconciliation uh, with in a world which has been and is being created anew in Christ. By this, writes John, may all men know that we are uh, Jesus' disciples for our love for one another. Well, how are you travelling so far? Are you with me or just a little bit confused by all of that? Well, the point is that the church is a community which witnesses to the triune God, the Trinity, who is himself the source of all community. And it does so by loving each other in a world of hatred and hardship. It does so by honouring each other in a world of social media trolls and bully pulpits. It respects, prays for and serves each other in a world which is self-serving, self-promoting and self-obsessed all too often. Well, of course, even of the church, this all sounds very idealistic. You'd think I'd never pastored a church or been part of a church for that matter with all this highfalutin talk of eternal love and new community making it all sound so rosy. Well this kind of in this picture at least taciturn looking fellow is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He wrote a a number of famous works you may have come across some of them but one of them perhaps one of his most famous is Life Together and it was based on the challenges of living in community in an underground seminary under the grave threat of arrest by the Gestapo, that is the Nazi uh, police, in the lead-up to World War II. Uh, In the book, Bonhoeffer suggests that the problem with community in the church is not the idealism about community that we find in scriptures. It's not like scripture paints too rosy a picture of what is actually possible in the real world and in our real flesh-and-blood churches. But he says the problem is our unrealistic dreams about community as Christians. We want a church, he says, that operates on our terms, which is easy for us, where everyone gets along and meets all of our needs. 
But he says, this is not true community. It's not real community. This is rather a self-serving dream, kind of the antithesis, really, of love and uh, the basis of real community. And Bonhoeffer says this, that Christian community is not an ideal we have to realise, but rather a reality created by God in Christ in which we may participate. So in other words, God invites us into the reality, um, sometimes hard reality, of community uh, rather than uh, offering before us some kind of impossible fantasy of how um, everything could be and everyone could be perfect in our church circles. And when Paul in the New Testament writes of loving, serving, accepting others, he's writing to a dysfunctional church often, addressing real divisions, real broken relations, real racial and social divides even, where people are annoying each other and fighting with each other and returning to the old tribal and racial divisions. So real community in the scriptures, as Bonhoeffer helps us see, is not some idealised fantasy world, but it is... um, a a form of living together, of being together, of doing life and community together, which is hard work, where we do the hard work of putting up with each other and then, on top of that, serving, loving and giving ourselves for the sake of others. And this love, this gritty, tough, hard-working community is a foretaste of the kingdom of God. For the kingdom of God is characterised by rich and right relations, which are genuinely for the other person, different genders, different classes, different socio-economic groups, different ethnicities even. This kingdom reflects the God himself who is constituted by right and rich relations between Father, Son and Spirit. That love is the source of our love. That community is the source of our community. It's also our destiny because it's founded and grounded in this greater love. Well, what does all this mean uh, for how we shall live in the here and now as we enter into this series that you're doing on being together as community? Well, firstly, the question, and perhaps a challenge for myself as well, how can you be community, really be community, even when it's hard? Because, well, it's always hard. How can PCC be a community which even faintly, even through a glass darkly, so to speak, anticipates the community for which we are destined? Community with the triune God through Christ and with each other. For now, this means recognising that the yearning for community that's hardwired into us has gone haywired. So being committed to community means hard work. It means mending fences, forgiving offences, reaching across cultural, racial, social and even political divides. To be community when it's hard is to gratefully echo the grace of God who was so committed to community with us that it cost a disruption in the community of God himself, the life of God the Son. Well, secondly, a question to reflect on. How can we provide community? And that might mean how can PCC continue to reach out to others, the lonely, the isolated and alone, those who don't have community as well as those yearning for more, to draw them into your community as a witness to the triune God? And thirdly, how can you help heal broken community around you, outside the uh, walls, metaphorically at least, of the church? How can PCC be peacemakers 
in a world of heightened tension, antagonism and angry opinions? How might we break down dividing walls of hostility and in doing so bear witness to the one who in the new community of Jesus Christ has abolished divisions between Jew and Gentile, male and female, slave and free, black and white, rich and poor, Democrat and Republican if you're in, if you're in the United States, and even chief exec- executive and office cleaner. The coming years uh, will probably continue to pose a number of challenges for our local and global communities. Now, as much as ever, is our moment to be community, provide community, and help heal community on the basis of being loved abundantly, overwhelmingly, by the God who is in himself the very definition and basis of community and love. Now, more than ever, may the world see the best of us as we do life committed together. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Parramatta Christian Church podcast. To hear other sermons or to find out more about our church, please visit our website at pcc.org.au.